the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. This fall is shaping up to be an incredible time to be a sports fan, and there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. Get the app, personalize your favorite teams and leagues, and get yourself personalized feed every single morning. That's what I do. Literally, the first thing I do, I wake up and I read what is hot at The Athletic, and that's why we're going to have Jeff Howe on today from the New England Patriots beat reporter of The Athletic. Great piece on Cam Newton. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription today. Of course, we're sponsored by Hip Parade, the mystery memorabilia box exclusive provider in the United States. Put down a few bucks. Get yourself a sealed box. Open it up. You'll find a Tom Brady helmet. You'll find a Patrick Mahomes rookie card signed. Sean Watson, Mike Trout, all the big names in sports. Michael Jordan. Everything's out there. I keep seeing great stuff on their Instagram feed. You can follow them there at Hit Parade or HP Collect. Visit dacardworld.com. Get yourself a mystery memorabilia box from Hit Parade. Okay, quick open today. I want to throw it back to you for the open. Uh, we're going to be getting a little bit more into baseball as the postseason hits. And then, of course, the offseason comes quickly. Look, we're going to have NBA offseason, NHL offseason, and baseball's offseason pretty much simultaneous this year as everybody has to ramp up and really get rolling about the same time. It sounds like, I don't know, January-ish, and then February for baseball as usual. So the winter is going to be busy with these off-seasons, and we're going to try to get ahead of it with baseball because I've identified, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so candidates for new contracts. Oh, by the way, we have not had a baseball contract in weeks. I mean, just weeks. They, they are worried about playing, and that's about it right now, these front offices. So you can understand that, um, especially with the, the unknowns about the upcoming tax and things like that. But look, there's players that need some contracts. Not so, it's not so much a great free agent class. Uh, but I'll hit a couple of those names as well. But man, the uh, you know the, the players in option years, the young kids that could maybe get out of arbitration right now, it's a, it's a pretty good list. I mean, as you can imagine, the game is young right now, and it's and it's exciting down there. And there's a couple of players who could really benefit from it. Um, so we'll, we'll get we'll hit that up a little bit. I'm gonna have a piece about that. We'll certainly do a show about that. But look at if you got a name that maybe you think I don't know of across this league, hit me up at Spotrac S P O T R A C. And I will make sure to do a little piece on at least that player and understand where he might be contractually speaking over the next 18 months or so. Because like I said, it's a pretty good list started with started here, but I'd love to head board names to it if possible. So we're going to bring in Jeff Howe, talk some Cam Newton, what his next contract might be worth if that next contract happens in New England, if it happens elsewhere, if the franchise tags are possible. And then Sarah Langs. I've been wanting to get Sarah on the show for quite some time now. We finally touched base today. She is an MLB.com reporter, formerly with ESPN, kind of Buster-only sidekick on his podcast, brings all the numbers, tons of stats, tons of trivia, just a research guru. She's great, and uh, her and I go back and forth a lot on the, the current baseball season, where we might be going next year, and kind of the, the situation we have, financially speaking, with starting pitchers, hitters, things like that. So Sarah will be great. Hope you enjoy my interview with Jeff Howe. Happy to be joined on the Hit Parade Hotline by the Patriots beat reporter for The Athletic. Been a big fan of his work for a long time. Jeff Howe. Jeff, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So Jeff's got a great piece this morning on The Athletic. Um, Cam Newton, of course. That's the hot topic in the NFL right now. It's tough to look away. Uh, No one really didn't think this wasn't going to work. Jeff has broken down Cam's value, maybe what what could become of him, where he may end up in 2021. Yes, it's early, but... I'm being asked these same questions, so I appreciate Jeff doing a lot of work on this. 
Jeff, uh, what got you here? Is it just basically the, uh, you, you know, the hot button issue right now? Yeah, it, it's actually kind of funny how it all played out because I was thinking about my story ideas for the week and I was talking with my boss on uh, Tuesday morning and I'm like, hey, you know, I think with the way Newton's played, it's pretty obvious that this is a guy who who could be there or will be their long-term answer, should be their long-term answer as soon as or as long as he gets through the season healthy and this pace of play continues. Like, I think we should get out in front of the contract situation. You know, let's start breaking it down the way that we did last season for Tom Brady and analyze every single option. He thought that was a great idea. We actually had it pegged to run either Wednesday evening or Thursday morning. And then about 15 minutes later, Newton was asked about the contract on the radio and everybody started <laughs> to pick it up. And I was like, I think we got to circle back here and uh, get this thing out as soon as humanly possible. So I uh, got to work on it and I just, I, I liked, uh, to get into contract stuff and kind of analyze what are comparable deals and which I know is obviously right up your alley. And it was just, uh, it, it was, it was a fun exercise to, to get to. Yeah. You mentioned Cam spoke about this. That, that definitely, uh, got me, got me aware as well. He said the right things. And I wonder if that factored in anything that you did. Did you have to go back and edit? Because, you know, what he said basically is I've made my money. I've made, he's made 122 and change in 10 seasons now, um, you know, that's not going to stop him from wanting 150 more here. I, I wouldn't imagine, but he, here's the real question. And even after reading your piece and, and answering this question a lot over the past couple of days, I, you know, we just haven't seen the Patriots do this. You know this. I mean, we haven't seen the Patriots go and make a big time extension, especially mid season like this. This is not their, you know, the, the time for them to, to be reckless with their money, even though they have the cap space as you've laid out really nicely in your piece. It, it just it doesn't seem Patriots like is that is that wrong to say? No, I think that's accurate. And a couple key points I want to hit on off of that is one. Um, maybe I already forgot the second key point. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get to the I'll get to the first one. So this is a question. So I, I have a friend who handles. Uh, you know, he works in the league and handles a lot of this stuff. So I usually, you know, drive him up the wall with all my questions just to make sure I have this stuff as accurate as possible. My first thought was, Hey, can you just lock in some of his incentives to try to make, to appease him the rest of the way? And that would actually, that wouldn't work at the best of my understanding. You can't just guarantee his full 7.5 million because it would cause his cap hit to increase within a calendar year of striking his most recent deal. So you, that's kind of out the window. So then my next thought was, can you even get to a contract extension right now? And that would be extremely difficult because then you're talking about voidable years right. and the way that that contract, that type of extension would have to come to fruition. I'm not sure it would be in the best interest for either side, because then you're probably talking about accelerating dead money and for Newton, I mean, you get back to it next year. So it's just like, you know, it, it would be a, an unnecessary mess. And then as I think you were alluding to what's in it for the team, like, why would you, why would you bank on, on this, you know, right now? I mean, you have an ideal situation. You have a guy who, if he continues to play this way, the rest of the season is going to be the biggest financial steal uh, in the NFL this season. And, you know, you can have him go out and continue to play like he's got to go earn that contract. Uh, how will that, you know, come into play next offseason? That was the point I was I had forgotten about off the top here is, you know, Cam Newton has made his money and he has said that money is not important. And I think he kind of alluded to that stuff. 
in the in recent months. So that point, I think, is has started to lay the groundwork for that point. But I always take it with some grain of salt because, you know, Tom Brady said that over and over and over. And he proved I mean, he backed it. I mean, he walked the walk by and large for his entire career. But the last couple contract negotiations with Brady and the Patriots certainly didn't add up. And the last one, most recently, obviously, completely fell apart. And it wasn't all about the money. And as I think we kind of learned, it was it was more about just trying to, to start over somewhere else. Uh, with Newton, he says it's not all about the money, but it's not like he's going to. I mean, he had to he had to play for the minimum plus some incentives this offseason. He just didn't have any other choice. But if he continues to play this way, I mean, maybe it's not all about the money. But what does that mean? It would still be well within his rights to to make as much money as possible. And what if a contending team, you know, let's say let's say the Patriots play hardball and a contending team comes out and says, we're going to give you the Deshaun Watson deal. And the Patriots sit there and they say, you know what? The best we can do is three for 90. Or, or let's say they even say three for 100. You know, that, that's when a guy has to really consider. Uh, it's it's hard. I mean, I, I, I know from experience when the Athletic hired me, they gave me the extra $50 million, So it was an easy decision <laughs> uh, to jump on. But I can't imagine turning down $50 million. So it's, it, I mean, it's it's all about the money to an extent. But when you consider respect and value among your peers, there's a competitive aspect the players all have in their own right. But who knows? I mean, maybe Cam Newton sits there and says, you know what? Three for 90 is perfectly fair. And I don't want to go to a place and, and try to start over, even if the money is better. OK, so here's the million dollar question, because, uh, you know, you've been following this team for quite some time now. They have utilized the franchise tag. That's got to be in play here. Right. I mean, t- to me, that's probably the number one option for this for this situation. I don't know. I mean, they can. So I think. From what I understand, the franchise numbers, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. I think the franchise numbers are supposed to be set in place next year, the same way that they were this year. So you're looking at $31.7 million for a quarterback, and, I mean, that's a, that's a steep price to pay. They can pay it. And obviously, if you're talking about if you average that out with average annual value of a three three-year $90 million contract. I mean, it's right about there. And obviously the cap numbers would be different because you can move the money around in a longer term deal. But that also puts almost all of the leverage in Cam Newton's court. Now the Patriots use the franchise tag on Joe Tooney this off season with the hopes that they could get a long-term extension because they certainly didn't want the 14.8 on their books for Tooney. And it just never happened because again, the player has all of the leverage in that situation. So if the Patriots tag Newton, Maybe I mean, I could see it happening because, you know, maybe they're close enough and they just don't want to allow a team like, you know, Jacksonville to come in and say, hey, we're going to give you five and two hundred because, you know, you you just never know. That's that's always a wild card scenario. So I don't think that they want to use the franchise tag. But, you know, again, if you use it, it's a placeholder for a longer term deal. You just have to make sure that you've made a considerable amount of progress to know that that thirty one point seven is not going to be on your books if those talks don't materialize as you might have hoped. Agreed. Agreed. And and one advantage they're going to have, especially if they do use that franchise tag, and even if they're not comfortable with the 31, as you're talking about, we have seen quite a bit of tag and trades, uh, you know, certainly not at this position, but it's a weird draft coming up here. It's going to be a draft where not a lot of these college kids are going to be on the field this season, you know, maybe some more than others here, but 
you know, they're going to have that in their favor if there's quarterback needy teams out there. You've made some mention of some of those teams, um, and I think it's a good list. Why don't you lay, lay us down maybe three other teams that might be looking at Cam Newton next next winter? Yeah, the first one that jumps out to me is the Colts. And because we just don't know how long Phillip Rivers wants to play. Or let's, I mean, the Colts have a really good roster. And they've been building something as, as long as Chris Ballard's been on the job there. He's proven to be a really solid GM, a whole lot more competent than the previous cast of characters they had running that place. So if, if Phillip Rivers decides he wants to retire or move closer to home, or let's just say the roster, I mean, he doesn't meet the value of the rest of their roster. Let's say they underachieved this season and they just decide, Hey, you know what? We've got 67 million in cap space. Philip Rivers wasn't the guy, but Cam Newton can be. So let's go and get him. Let's turn our attention to him. I think that would be an enticing place for a guy like Newton to play. You know, you're 32 years old. You get to play in a dome. You get to play in a division that is absolutely winnable for years to come. And, you know, that could be an attractive landing spot for him. Then you look at the 49ers, a team that could is is built to win now although that's a there's a major asterisk there with all the injuries they've just dealt with but their quarterback situation i mean whether i I don't know firsthand how serious the 49ers were about you know kicking the tires on tom brady this offseason but there was some smoke there so uh they can get out of jimmy garoppolo's deal if they decide they want to go in a different direction kyle shanahan is clearly a quarterback friendly coach i mean the last 10 minutes of a Super Bowl and, you know, notwithstanding, <laughs> but it's, that's an attractive place for a guy to play. I mean, who wouldn't want to play for the 49ers and the storied history and all that stuff. So I could see that being a possibility, but you know, the wild card there is you mentioned some of the draft picks that, you know, three top 10 quarterbacks, you could have potentially the first three picks in the next yeah. draft being quarterbacks, uh, two guys who look like bona fide franchise players. I mean, if the 49ers injury stuff, continues to just derail the season you know, they could be in the market for for trevor lawrence or justin fields so you know that's a possibility you know you look at the the next tier that i would say you know these guys could be interested if certain events unfold you know the broncos the raiders the cowboys if things don't materialize with Dak prescott you look at washington and the, the relationship that cam has with ron rivera i mean if they don't think that uh, Dwayne Haskins is the guy. Maybe a reunion with Rivera's in store. So I think there's a there's a few teams out there. But you know, if if any of those teams fall flat and have a top ten pick, you know that kind of reduces the market. Whereas I think this time last year, you could look at looking ahead at Tom Brady and the competition that you could have for him. Although I actually I included the Buccaneers, but like as a long shot type of scenario. So what did I know? But you know, you take away some of those teams. I had nine teams that could be potential suitors for Newton. You could take away as many as three of those if they have a chance to draft one of those three quarterbacks. So it you know the competition for Newton might not be terribly high if the Patriots want to call his bluff and say, you know what, go out, find your market and then come back and we'll talk numbers again. And you mentioned the Cowboys with Dak. If Dak hits the market, I think that even further reduces Cam's opportunity and, and, and bidding war out there because I think Dak will be put ahead of him. You know, he'll be a higher price tag most likely, but I, I think teams would value Dak higher than Cam, especially after yeah. what we just saw. I mean, it's it's still mind blowing to me that 29 teams bailed on Cam Newton and we got to a point where 
it was it was take a minimum or nothing. I still can't believe it. You know, I, I reference it a lot on Twitter because it's it's still kind of unbelievable that he can max out at seven and a half million and he probably doesn't get to six on this current contract. You've got a reference here of what might happen in terms of numbers. And I think you're correct in referencing Tannehill and his situation because quite frankly, Newton's current contract right now is basically what Tannehill had last year with Tennessee as a as an incoming backup with incentives if you were to become a starter. He basically maxed that out going as deep as he did in the postseason. And Cam has an opportunity to get that point as well. So, you know, is Tannehill's four for 118 basically the foundation now for, for Cam Newton next offseason? I think it's a starting point. I don't know if I would call it a foundation. And that's more semantics on my part, I guess, because I think Tannehill even though that's the best comp, I think with a guy changing teams and then really playing really solid football, Tannehill had a a perfect storm. I mean, he was like Chris Farley barging through a a paper mache wall, just coming out ready to party because it was a perfect storm with a lot of quarterbacks on the move, the salary cap on the rise and teams that could have really competed for his services before the Titans had to really push all their chips in and give him the deal that he got. Uh, I think with Cam Newton, the one thing that's going to hurt him is the salary cap is projected to be around 175 million next off season. So that's going to diminish everybody's value on the open market. And it's, especially if it truly does flatten for about a three year period, Whereas, you know, recently, almost the last each of the last 10 years, it's gone up by about 10 million annually. So that is going to hurt Cam Newton. And that's why I don't think that four and uh, I think it's 128 for Tannehill is is realistic if you're the Patriots. Now, again, if Dak signs with the Cowboys and you take him out of the equation and Cam Newton is the top guy on the market. And let's say there's a bidding war between Indianapolis and, and maybe San Francisco. I don't know. And, you know, another team like the Jaguars, which I don't think is a realistic option because who wants to play for them right now? But, you know, once you start throwing numbers around, you got to start to consider them. Uh, I think it's unrealistic that he gets that much. But who knows? I mean, if this guy is like in the top three in the MVP conversation and you've got a team that is desperate for a quarterback piece to put them over the top, you know, that's that's a possibility. I just don't know if that's something that the Patriots would entertain just with the way that they've kind of constructed, you know, their value chart throughout the roster and and the falling salary cap. And, you know, just one more element to that when they, their final proposal to Tom Brady last summer was two years and 53 million. And I'm not comparing Newton to Brady, but I'm just using that as an example to say that was what they kind of accounted for on their books. And I know things have changed in the last several months, but you know, when you're talking about, let's say, what, 26.5 annually, it's hard to go up to, uh, you know, 30 over four with a, a falling salary cap. So I, I just that's why I, that's why I put it down to three and 30. And, you know, this and who knows, maybe that's high, too. I, I don't know. We're all just sort, I'm, I'm certainly just sort of guessing here, speculating. No, I think you're right. And I think because it's the Patriots, these conversations are all completely valid. I think if it's any other team, I mean, look at the, the, the one note that needs to be brought up about the Tannehill contract, and I, and I try to bang this hat as much as possible. He was signed almost immediately to this extension. They didn't even wait for other teams to value him on that open market. They were bidding against no one and basically gave him top value you know, per his production. So 
you know, but the Patriots are not going to do that. And, and whether they let Cam go and try to find other offers remains to be seen, but they are not going to bid against themselves. That's for darn sure. In fact, you mentioned some right. of the other players who need, who need some contract, either options or extensions this offseason. My guess is all of those players get done before Cam even gets considered because they like to reduce that cap number as much as possible to hold it as leverage, not to mention the 175 you're mentioning. And look, if, if we just take the numbers you gave with Brady right there, you know, basically 14, you know, 14% of this year's salary cap is what they offered Tom Brady on an extension for 2020. If that's the number for Cam next year, you're down in the low 20s. You're down at 22, 23 million a year. So if that's acceptable to Cam, and maybe it is based on what he said in this interview, then maybe it does get done. But I would expect that they're going to let him test the market. And the two teams you've referenced, Indy and San Francisco, are perfect, in my opinion. I think those are two GMs who would make this kind of a move because they do have contending rosters right now around it. And I think the, the, the ship on Garoppolo is almost sailed. So you can, you can save almost $22 million to, re- to remove him right now. And that's a cap number you can give to Cam Newton pretty easily. So it, it's a great piece, Jeff. You laid out a lot, a lot of stuff here. I like the Kirk Cousins reference with, with how Minnesota's had to sort of been held hostage with their extensions, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, signing him to what they did was, was fine, but then having to extend him because of their own cap issues was their own fault. And that's not something the Patriots will get themselves into. So there's a lot of elements to think about when Cam's value comes into play next February. But it's a great piece. I'm glad you did it early so we can talk about it now and see where we go for the next 15 weeks. But uh, nice job. You can, you, can, you can see him at Jeff P. Howe on Twitter. Of course, follow him there. And he's at The Athletic all the time. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. All right. Thrilled to be joined on the Hit Parade Hotline by MLB.com reporter Sarah Lang. Sarah, I've been a follower and a fan on social media for quite a, quite a long time here. I, I know you're kind of newer to the scene, but you're, uh, you're integrated now with some of the big boys and the big girls in the game, and you are, uh, you are a numbers queen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that title. Tell us a little well, bit about your, you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you got into this mess, and uh, you know, what do you enjoy the most about it? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your very kind words. Uh, a queen is hard to live up to, but I'll do my best. Um, I have been uh, I've been working for MLB for MLB.com for about a year and a half now, uh, and before that, I worked for ESPN, uh, the ESPN Stats and Info Group, as a researcher. Uh, I researched baseball tonight for three years, so working with uh, the talent producers, graphics producers, everybody else, putting together the stats you see on screen. Uh, during the show and getting a chance to do stuff like podcasts with Buster Olney and uh, other other outlets. So that's sort of where I've grown, I guess, my voice and also just, you know, my interest in looking into more and more about baseball. Uh, obviously, that goes back a lot further. I grew up a huge baseball fan and my parents are huge baseball fans and we used to pose questions around the dinner table all the time. And now I get to actually answer them, which is really, really fun. So that's that's me. I love it. I love it. So, uh, you know, how did the numbers come about? Is that just kind of something you you fell into? You know, were you just kind of a stats nerd out of the gate or was it a job opening that you fell in love with? Um, Yeah, I think it was a combination of factors. I mean, I will say that the way my parents approach sports is very much, you know, when's the last time that happened Hmm. or, you know, can we quantify that? So that's sort of how we talked about sports, even when I was a kid, you know, and before, they probably weren't aware of baseball reference and probably before I was even aware of it, you know, we were just talking about 
you know, my mother remembering, oh, the last time so-and-so made a catch like that or whatever it is. So I think that that sort of opened the door to wanting to be able to answer those questions. And when I was in college and, you know, working towards, you know, hoping to be some sort of baseball reporter, uh, it just sort of turned out that research was an area that wasn't really covered in a lot of places where I interned. So we had a beat reporter, but we didn't necessarily have somebody digging into the last time uh, I interned for SNY. And the year that I interned for them, they only had one all-star. And this was after a string of having like at least two every year for a while. And I said, hey, what if I wrote a story about the last time they only had one all-star? And it had been, you know, six years ago and it was a totally different team. And it ended up being a really fun thing to dig into. So just pitching things like that ended up giving me a lot more chances to really show my voice and, you know, dig into things and write stories and get bylines. So that sort of started it. And then from there, I became aware of the ESPN Stats Info Group and that researching was actually a thing. Uh, And, you know, the rest is history, I guess. I love it. All right, so you've switched gears a little bit in the past year and a half, as you mentioned. So has baseball, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, my goodness. From your from your aspect, because you know, obviously, you know what we do at Spotrek is is numbers based, but we try to steer somewhat clear of the stats because you're right. There are research departments that do this so well, we can sort of piggyback off them and use money with stats sort of accordingly. But you you, you kind of sit all the way down into the numbers. What is glaringly different about this year? Is it, you know, obviously the shortened season, obviously there are some seven inning games thrown in here, which I know are throwing a lot of things off, but from a statistical standpoint, are you struggling with, you know, year end stats that we're going to have to announce for players here, or did it go better than maybe you anticipated? I mean, I think ultimately we're seeing good players or players who are on the cusp of being good succeeding. And we're seeing players who maybe weren't as good, Uh, having a bit less success. So I I think ultimately, like, I don't feel that we're going to look back and say, oh, well, that was the 2020 season for an individual player performance. Because even though it's only 60 games, I mean, rate stats are rate stats. And there certainly have been weeks where I've looked at someone's batting average or slugging percentage and seven days later, it was vastly different. And that doesn't happen when you're in September and in a 162 game season. But I do think overall, you know, we're at a point where we can evaluate players well enough and we use enough different statistics altogether and the eye test and everything else where I don't think anyone is going to get fooled by a season or think something isn't really what it should be. Uh, but that being said, I mean, I, I do think that it's really, it's been hard to, you know, you come up with an idea of how a team is doing or a player is doing. And the truth is that it's able to change pretty quickly this year. Uh, and that's definitely something you have to be just up on and aware of. Uh, you know, we had some teams get off to slower starts. I mean, the A's got off to a slow start in like their first seven games. And now they're one of the best teams in the American League. And no one even remembers that first week and they were able to get past it. But it's just funny because if someone maybe watched the first week and then took some time off to do something else, they might still be thinking that. And I'm not sure you get that by September in a normal season. Uh, But overall, you know, we have data and that's really all we need. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I think, you know, I was concerned coming into this. Well, for a lot of reasons, obviously, but I was concerned that. Mike Trout or Nolan Arenado, they were going to be so good out of the gate and so, so good under, over that 60 game span that the numbers were going to look crazy bloated. That wasn't the case. Yes, they're still way up there. You know, I know Nolan's hurt right now, but yeah, but Trout's way up there. You know, Juan Soto's number power numbers are way up there, but they're not gaudy. 
And conversely, you know, Pete Alonzo's sophomore slump, which we all kind of anticipated is right here. You know, he didn't have 40 games where he was blitzing to sort of get him, get himself over that hump. You know, would he have rebounded over 162? Maybe, but it just seems like everything from a player perspective kind of went as it should have. But you mentioned the teams, and I think that's the big difference because I don't think teams like San Diego or Miami would have lasted for 162 just because of their lack of pitching. But they certainly lasted for 60, and we're here, and the postseason is a week away. So I guess I want to touch on these on these teams because, you know, San Diego, Miami, and certainly the White Sox, of course, they're in. And I don't think a lot of people saw that coming this quickly from those organizations. Was that your thinking as well, and do you agree with my assessment? Yeah, I definitely agree with your assessment. I think that the fact that the new playoff format was announced, you know, just before the season started, I think that people might have had different perspectives on the White Sox and Padres in even the July, like preseason part, not just in March and February. Sure. Uh, but we didn't we didn't know how many teams would be in the playoffs until pretty quickly. I think it may have been the day of, but before the season, um, I remember doing a podcast in January and saying I wanted it to be the White Sox year, but it feels like it's more realistic to be next year. And then I remember doing the same thing on like July 1st and again, feeling the same way. But that was before we knew how many teams would be in the playoffs. But to their credit, they would be in regardless. And the Padres are also in a situation like that. And it's just been so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can even attribute it to anything uh, fluky. It's not the fact that they're only playing 60 games. It's, it's none of that. I mean, these teams have been really, really good. I think that the White Sox have maybe a better chance to go deeper in the playoffs this year, but not even necessarily because of their team, but more so because of how the AL is shaping up right now. Uh, as it stands right now, they wouldn't have to face the Yankees until the ALCS, whereas the Padres would run into the Dodgers in the, in the division series in the new second round. And I think that that's kind of the distinguishing factor in terms of how these teams will fare these playoffs. But overall, I mean, they're looking, you know, the future is so bright and we already knew it was. It's just so exciting to get to see it, you know, come maybe a year earlier than most people were expecting. Yeah, there's no question. That's how I took it as well. But uh, what about long term? I mean, what about a full 2021 season? God willing, Um, you know, which one of these teams you've mentioned, the White Sox, the Athletics, uh, certainly the Marlins and the Padres. Do they have longevity? Are these mini dynasties kind of coming up? Because certainly that that Padres team is young and the White Sox for sure as well. Uh, do they need to add a piece to kind of keep this thing going in 2021? Or do you really like what they are right now? You know, I really like where the Padres and White Sox are both right now. I mean, I think the White Sox, hopefully Michael Kopech comes back next year. That was actually half of the basis for my like hope that maybe they could sneak into the playoffs this year. Little did we know, you know, Lucas Giolito was going to be great again and that their entire rotation was really going to look good. Um, Dallas Keuchel has been good for them, which is not necessarily how I expected that to go. Um, I didn't know that he would be such a, such a factor for them. Uh, and the Padres are also, you know, just, I think those teams, we knew they were rebuilding. So I think that, you know, we knew they would be good in 2021 and 2022. It was a question of 2020. So I think that the long-term, you know, longevity for both of those teams is looking really good. I think the A's are in a good spot. They're kind of in the spot that they've been in for the last few years now, if anything, maybe in a better place this year because they are going to, or they did win the division um, or are going to, I can't remember if they clinched it. Uh, And obviously they've been the wild card the last few years and the last few times they've been in the Marlins. I'm, I'm just not sure. I mean, it's really fun. It's so exciting. It's so fun to get to mention that the Marlins are undefeated in playoff series. I it's 
going to really stink if that ends this year, which, I mean, I don't want to be wrong, but I feel like it probably will. Uh, but the 6 no in playoff series is just so much fun to mention. But if you look at who their biggest contributors have been on the offensive side, Miguel Rojas has been great for them. We saw how much of a team leader he was when they dealt with the issues with COVID and everything else. But he's 31, so I'm not sure that you're looking to him to say, okay, this team has a lot of longevity moving forward. Brian Anderson, also really good for them. He's a little younger. He's 27. That gives me a little bit more hope. And the pitching, I mean, Sixto Sanchez has been so much fun to watch. Throws so hard. He did get beat up a little bit last time out, but he does throw really hard, and you figure they can make that work. But I would say of all those teams, my future thoughts, at least based on the current group, uh, would probably be the most down on the Marlins. But it's been fun. Okay. Let's talk players a little bit and then we'll get a little silly and then we'll finish it up with some money <laughs> just to get out there. We're talking to Sarah Lang's MLB.com reporter. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not start with Shane Bieber because uh, this is quite a story. I mean, you, you, you basically give up on Corey Kluber, which you had to. It was the right time to do that. Cleveland's small market. They have to make their decisions one year earlier than most franchises would. That's just how they operate. And, and they're in that Fran- Frankie Lindor situation right now, oh, by the way. So, B- so Kluber's gone. Carrasco's injured to start the year. It all falls on Bieber. We saw a little bit of it last year. And now, now he's here. He is, <laughs> he is completely here and he is outstanding. I mean, start to start, he is outstanding. Is he for real? And maybe the bigger question is he one of those starting pitchers that can just carry a team through an offseason, a Verlander-type performance, a Kershaw? Well, I shouldn't say Kershaw, right? But one of those, a Max Scherzer-type performance who can just push one team every three to four, four outings and get them through these series. Yeah, I mean, I do think he's for real, to answer your first question. It's funny because one of the things that uh, there was this preseason contest that MLB.com had called The Vault because of the new decade and the idea was you enter and you pick who's going to lead the majors in a bunch of categories this decade. Uh, I had a lot of fun having my mom fill it out for me and, you know, posting <laughs> what her, what her picks were, which is a lot of fun. She's a big baseball fan. Uh, and it's fun because you don't usually enter an online contest where you're not going to get the answer until, uh, 2029. Uh, anyway, uh, for MLB.com, we had our beat reporters try to get a player or two in spring training back when spring training was going on and have them fill it out or say who they thought would be the leader in a bunch of categories. And one of the guys whose names kept coming up on the pitching side was Shane Bieber. And I thought that was really interesting because entering this year, I don't think that he had that mainstream respect um, or understanding of the success that he had had or was expected to have in the future. But it was really interesting to see that a pretty wide cross-section of his peers on a bunch of different teams, but definitely I remember seeing one from, I think, someone on the Twins and, you know, guys in his division specifically pointing out, like, he's really nasty. He's going to have the most wins. He's going to have the most all-star appearances, whatever it was. So that's kind of what put him on my radar entering this year to watch, not just as, okay, he's probably going to have to lead this team, but, hey, he could make it to that Cy Young conversation. So it's been really exciting for me to see that play out after reading that article on like March 3rd and then you know where we are today and I think that if you look at what he's done I mean there's just there's nothing there's nowhere that he's really getting lucky in terms of the contact he's allowing or anything else he has he and Jacob deGrom jostle back and forth with who has the highest whiff rate among qualified starters and both of them are in the 40s and we've never had someone have a whiff rate in 40 percent for a qualified starter since pitches have been tracked, which goes back to 1988. So 
that's not, that can't be a fluke. You know, that's, he's doing exactly what he should be doing with the way that he pitches. So I think it's been, you know, it's just been outstanding in terms of whether he can carry a team in October. I do think that the 2020 playoff format is going to make it pretty different. You know, the fact that there are no off days in series makes it such that you can't, you know, work around, have him pitch one time on short rest and bring him back three times in the series and the seven game series uh, or any of that. So I do think while I'm sure that all of these guys are going to be willing to be flexible and find a way to help their team as much as possible, there's only so much that, you know, an arm can do. So I think that, you know, I'm not sure that he will have a Madison Bumgarner 2014 carry the team all the way to the World Series. But I do think that, you know, he he just makes the team so much better. And you see that pitching staff, and it's just like a pitching factor right now. I mean, Tristan McKenzie, I saw that he's going to be in the bullpen for the rest of the season now. And it seemed to imply that that may be the role he plays for them in the postseason. But Tristan McKenzie came out and, like, set an Indians franchise record for strikeouts in a major league debut. And, like, they had already gotten rid of – I think they had Clevenger at that point. uh, But they were on the verge of trading him. Zach Plezak wasn't even pitching for them at the moment. Corey Kluber is on the Rangers and injured. Rangers and injured. Uh, it's just incredible the arms that they have. You're right. I think Clevenger had just been sent down at that point, and McKenzie came yeah. out to make that start. So you're right. It's it's a factory. It, it's starting pitcher you there. Um, interesting <laughs> exactly. point. You're right though about the no days off. That's a big point. That's a really good point of contention with this this upcoming postseason because. That may factor in with the younger teams here. I mean, that can definitely help younger teams who have a little bit more oomph from their step right now heading into October. Yep. Um, you know, experience might not win out there. Okay. You make, you know, 15, 20 great tweets a day with all these numbers, with great stats, <laughs> with great numbers. You do. But you also bring in names that many of us don't follow. You know, you're going deep down the rabbit hole. So we mentioned Bieber. He's kind of the obvious one in terms of these young uh, dynamic players. Who's somebody that maybe just broke in that we really don't even know about yet that, you know, maybe is sitting on the waiver wire in fantasy baseball? Yeah, I mean, one that immediately jumps out to me and hopefully people are starting to know his name. And I think he has a really good rookie of the year uh, case going right now in the National League is Devin Williams, uh, reliever on the Brewers. He, I think he's really gotten into the conversation, especially in the last week or two with the Brewers sort of remaining in the playoff race right on the border there uh, and him pitching in really meaningful games. But his changeup is the pitch to watch. He has a 63% whiff rate on his changeup, wow. which is insane. So no pitcher has thrown, has gotten at least 100 swings against a pitch type this year and had a higher whiff rate than that. Uh, and it's just so much fun to watch because when guys swing and miss at changeups, it's just, I mean, I could never do any of this, but you see that happen and you're just like, wow, baseball is so difficult. Like it's just so hard because you have Shane Bieber coming out there. You have Jacob DeGrom throwing a hundred. You have Sixto Sanchez throwing a hundred, not to mention all of the relievers, Garrett Crochet, everybody else. And then you have Devin Williams coming in here and just keeping you completely off balance. And depending on what team you're facing, you could see those ends of the spectrum in one game or even in an inning. Uh, And he's, he's just been so, so valuable for them. And I think that, you know, we know how good of a manager Craig council is and so much of it is the way that he manages his pitching staff and his bullpen. And if they do make it to the playoffs, which I believe they're in position to right now, it's very much going to be on the strength of how he's managed specifically that group. And Williams is a great, you know, another weapon that he's got in that bullpen right now. Right. And oh, by the way, Josh Hader is back. So yikes, Uh, yikes to that little combination there. You mentioned DeGrom, which is so interesting because 
you go back to back Cy Youngs on uh, on that Mets team, and then he just decides to show up this year with 100 miles an hour for no reason. Uh, right? you, you know, let's just keep everybody on their toes, I guess. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Except for we can make it go a little harder. Uh, real, that's that's really interesting. I'd love to talk to you about that separately, actually, and just understand why he would even need to do that. But we'll get that's a different show, I think. Um, <laughs> let's get silly because I read this today, and I actually love this kind of discussion. I love these kind of research. So you know. Nelson Cruz has been a freak of nature, but there's no other way to say it. He's 40. You know, you look at a guy like Pujols, who's, who's up, up there in that age. We've seen players come down into the 40s and, you know, they are what they are. They're, they're role players. They have specific things that they, can, that they can do for a team to help. But that's not Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz shows up every day and you just expect him to be hitting a home run for you. It's, it's, it's outlandish. And when asked basically what his secret was, he said it's because he takes a 25 minute nap before the game. <laughs> and, yep. and that sounds ridiculous. And I think it, the article I was reading was somewhat satirical with it. But look, I went to the Sloan, Sloan, Sloan conference a couple of years back and I sat in a 45 minute conference listening to a sleep doctor discuss the NBA and discuss how he has been hired by many teams to sit with these players and understand specifically what they need in terms of sleep per night, if a nap would, would be beneficial to them, all this certain things, there's an, there's a gigantic scientific formula to it that is now filtered into athletics. And I believe in this stuff. And if Nelson Cruz says that's what works for him, I 100% believe it. I don't know if somebody told him to do it or if he just decided, you know, one day after a big lunch, he was just going to nap and it worked out for him and he's superstitious. But I believe in this stuff. I wonder if this, this kind of science has come across you, you at all. Are other players doing this? Like I said, I've, I know it's big in the NBA right now. It's almost a team-oriented thing. Uh, is this coming for baseball? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, uh, I, I remember reading a couple articles about what you're referring to uh, with the NBA, and I think the NBA has been in an interesting spot with, I mean, there was the whole thing about how those guys are with their coffee. Uh, not just recently yeah. with the bubble. I know Jimmy Butler or whatever, but like previously there was a lot about uh, certain things they've done with caffeine. So I'm very curious to see where all of that goes. I don't know if all these baseball players are necessarily paying attention to this, but it's so much fun that Nelson Cruz is doing this. <laughs> I And I want to give a plug to it. So Dustin Morse is the, I think, senior director of communications for the twins. And he does an outstanding job on Twitter. I mean, communications director, as far as I know, does not need to be on Twitter, not only posting stats or information, but also just putting out you know, just content for us to see what their team is like. And he does an incredible job. It's at Morse code, like, you know, the uh, language on Twitter. And he tweeted out a picture, I think it was like last week, which I think spawned the article you're referring to, of uh, Nelson Cruz taking his pregame nap on the road. And it's amazing because it looks like it's some room in the stadium. They're on the road. And it, it looks like a break room. Kind of. There's definitely like a soda machine or a fridge, something like that. And he's lying covered in some towels. He has a mask over his eyes and he's just set up there. And like then he goes out and he probably hit two home runs that night. <laughs> yeah. And it's just so cool, you know, and it's just so funny to think of what these guys are like. And I, I found a quote from him. I think this is from last year. But he said 25 minutes. Research tells you that power naps are the best. You wake up with a lot of energy. It's like a boost. And there was a quote from uh, Dustin Morse in the article on MLB.com about this that said that because of this, he's he has so much energy. 
and you know they'll win a game and everyone will be kind of tired at the end and he's like bouncing off the wall and I, I do think it's really interesting so i think that other players especially maybe older players who may find their energy you know stopping a little quicker or whatever else should be paying attention to this but i mean i i wish i could i'm not a good napper like if i if i take a nap i fall asleep so and then i'm not getting up after 25 minutes so i wish i could harness this and like i would love to read more about this and figure out how to do this correctly yeah i totally agree yeah I, I, it's probably not for everybody but like i said there are legitimately doctors who can like assess you and and tell you yeah. if you're a nap candidate so you know amazing. if you hate analytics this is probably <laughs> this is probably the wrong show for you um, let's talk a little money and then we'll get you out of here i appreciate your time so much this is sarah lang's mob.com reporter and what did i call you numbers queen <laughs> okay. Um, let's start here. We mentioned like the DeGroms and the starting pitchers, the Biebers, who there certainly have a ton of value. I mean, their wars and all those major stats are way up there in terms of their team value and their replaceability. Um, but w where are we going positionally in baseball? I feel like we had, I feel like relief pitching had a good run for like three years. And it got me to the point of where I got on this show and basically said, okay, we, we need to start really watching this closely because this might be devaluing the starting pitcher. You know, if we start seeing five relief pitchers per game, then there's no chance the starting pitcher is going seven, maybe not even six innings on a regular basis. It's going to become a norm in baseball. And I feel like that has retracted over the past two seasons and, and certainly this year with the shortened season. But are, are you in this camp at all? I mean, we have we have openers, you know, the Rays and, and, and some of these teams do this now pretty much religiously. But where are you? Let's start with just pitching. Is the starting pitcher still as valuable as ever? And I'm talking, you know, obviously worth to their team and also contractually speaking, are they still worth big time major contracts? I think so, because the thing I always come back to with this is that the opener has certainly been, you know, a really good strategy, something that the Rays have definitely perfected. And I think a couple other teams have done really well with too. But what it comes back to ultimately is you just need to have the right arms, right? You need to have really good pitchers, regardless of whether they're starting for you or relieving for you. And part of what has made it so, you know, so successful for the Rays is that they also have Blake Snell, Tyler Glass now, Charlie Morton, though he's been hurt for most of this year. They have those guys. So when you have at least two really good starting pitchers, maybe three, then yeah, you can afford to, you know, move around pieces in your bullpen, have guys pitching, you know, four inning relief appearance here as like the main event guy uh, or whatever else you need. When you don't have that and you're scrambling with your bullpen every night, then you can't also afford to make an opener game or even a bullpen game really successful. And with the overall, you know, sort of, I don't know, ideology with bullpens and how people use them, I think that in 2016, with the way that Tito Francona used Andrew Miller and the way he used his entire bullpen that year, there was a lot of talk that this was going to revolutionize the way bullpens are used, not just in the postseason, but overall, because he used him at any point and it wasn't just keep him to be a closer and all of that. And while that's 100 percent true and it was outstanding and that team was really, really good and it was very much thanks to Tito's managing Again, that only works if you have really, really good relievers. So I think that sometimes those lines get blurred and people look at teams that are maybe a little bit more on the borderline and expect these things to happen. But the truth is that if you don't have the arms, it's, it's not going to matter no matter how you use them. So I think that the value of a starting pitcher is still very much there because it's really hard to have that many good relievers in one bullpen. And even the team that probably does it best still has three really good starting arms. So, you know, we've seen... 
you know, Garrett Cole has been maybe not even the Garrett Cole we expected yet, but he's been really good for the Yankees and that's allowed them to get through. They've been through like three different phases with their bullpen this year, if you ask me, because they didn't have Chapman at one point and then the entire team was struggling and then now they're pitching better and all of that was possible in part because they did have that steadiness from starters. So I don't think that we'll ever get to a point where the starting pitcher isn't valuable. I think that, you know, people may put more or less stock in completing a game or going eight innings or anything like that. But it really just comes down to the reliability, no matter how many innings you're throwing. And I hate to put you on the spot with this, but do you know offhand has, has the average start come down uh, maybe over the Um, past decade, you know? I okay, so I, I don't have the exact number, but I know that the number of starts of a hundred or more pitches and the number of starts that went five plus innings or six plus innings definitely have at least six plus innings for sure. Okay. Um, and if you look, you know, to twenty twenty compared to twenty ten compared to nineteen ninety, you would definitely see differences there. Um, I'm not sure that it's like the most drastic necessarily 2019 to 20. Um, it probably was early in the year because guys might not have been, you know, they didn't go through a normal spring training. Uh, but overall, definitely in a 10 year span, I'm pretty sure it's down. So right now there's, tw- there's 17 starting pitchers making at least 20 million per year um, in the league. Okay. Here, here's why I'm, I'm bringing this up and, and I'm kind of focusing on this position. I, I'm almost, and basically you, you just kind of gave me, you know, gave us more to put into this pot. From what I'm hearing, you can't just have one, right? You just can't. You can't just have one. I mean, I'm a Mets fan. I know this. When Syndergaard went out, <laughs> DeGrom was never just going to carry this team. He's, he's, he's outstanding, but he's just doesn't, he doesn't play enough to be able to win enough games for your team. So um, I wonder, I really wonder if we're going to have a running back situation with the starting pitcher where you're still going to have a 1%, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 12 starting pitchers who are just, you, you can't, in order to keep them or in order to get them off of free agency, you've got to pay way up there, 35 million plus per year. And, and we'll have that, right? And I would equate that to the Christian McCaffrey's of the running back world. He's just, he's, he does too much. You have to pay him to keep him. But I think everything else might start to come down. I really think because what you're saying, it's not just having one or two. You've got to have a third. And some teams in the smaller markets, because their number one isn't as great, you've got to have a fourth. And especially if you're thinking about postseason ball, you've got to have a fourth who's going to be worth at least of some value to you. And, you know, when you need four starting pitchers of value, you probably can't have one that's worth 30 million a year. So I really do think a lot of these not huge market teams, you know, Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees out the door, everybody else may have to start considering depth over getting that one big fish and that $30 million fish. So that's where I think the market might change because of everything you're saying. You got to have two to three to four to even consider having a good bullpen right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for the fact that, you know, obviously there are guys who are, you know, very much proven and have had really good careers, get to free agency, and they're going to command, you know, large contracts, as you're saying. But I think there are also guys like Corbin Burns who's having a great year for the Brewers, yeah. pretty under the radar, where, you know, if your organization is really sound in terms of, you know, obviously I'm a fan of analytics, but this isn't like, a, oh, analytics are best even comment. But if, you're, if your team is really sound in that respect, I think that you are able to look at the guys in your organization, see someone who is maybe struggling a, l- a little bit in AAA and figure out if there is something else that you can bring out of him if he were to pitch slightly differently, you know, like really evaluating your own players. And I think that the best teams are able to do 
the absolute best teams are able to do a combination of both, right? Like the Dodgers, where they can spend money, but they can also get the absolute best out of all of their guys and then not necessarily be paying the younger guys as much. Um, but then a team like the Brewers may not be in a position to spend as much, but they're able to have Corbin Burns having a Cy Young season that I don't think anyone saw coming. So I do think that when you need so many pitchers, yeah, you can't. I mean, the Nationals, the Nationals rotation is really something <laughs> yeah. with Scherzer, Strasburg and Corbin's contracts. And I remember when they signed Corbin, just trying to look into the context of that. And obviously, as you know very well, salary context is difficult because of inflation, because the fact that these contracts go up every year. Mm-hmm. Um but just the idea that there could be three guys making that much in their starting rotation was pretty unprecedented. Um, and I don't necessarily think we'll see that again for that reason. And it worked out for them perfectly because they won a World Series. So mission accomplished. Um, but I think for the longer term and for longevity, like we were talking about earlier, uh, it's not necessarily about paying the guys as it is finding someone in your organization to really bring out the best in. So this is a smooth transition into, I think, our, our last point here, which is, you know, these, these younger players that are coming up and making an impact right away. I feel like more so than we've ever seen in this game. I mean, the, the, the superstars are young, they're hungry, and they are inexpensive. And that's a bad recipe for free agency and veteran contracts. And we know what happens eventually if this thing continues. But what we're seeing is these young guys come up, you know, some of them haven't even touched the field yet and they're getting paid. But generally speaking, it's been about a year and teams decide they they love enough of what they've seen and they offer a sizable contract, but certainly not a top, you know, not these contracts we're, we're referencing and players and agents are all in on this. So is this a trend? Is this is this tying into what we're talking about? Whereas, you know, if we dangle 100 million in front of them right now, they're going to take it and they can figure out what happens, you know, when they actually become free agents in seven years. And that's not for us to figure out. We just want to have this player happy and paid right now. Uh, just kind of run that back a little bit and what you've seen with these young kids as they progressed. I mean, like I said, the White Sox paid two players they never even saw on the field. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to play out. And I'm pretty sure when they gave Lewis Robert his contract in the offseason, that made them the first, the only team to do this twice of giving a, a long-term contract to a guy before he set foot on the field. We had two of those this offseason, also Evan White um, for the Mariners. Right. I don't, I, I mean, I think there've only been like six of those. It's, it's a small number. It's a single digit number. I think that those are sort of an aberration where obviously not being in the room, I think that those require a lot to go right for the organization where they know that the player really feels comfortable and they really want to be in a situation where they don't have to think about, you know, whatever it is moving forward for a bit, uh, not to speak for them, but just guessing, um, given how infrequently it does happen. But I think that it'll always go a little bit on market size and teams. I mean, I don't, we haven't seen the Yankees. They haven't done that. But we also haven't necessarily seen them, you know, giving their pre-arb guys um, huge extensions. Uh, we haven't because they can always go to the free agent market. Right. And they can always find whoever Jericho <laughs> or whoever else it yeah. is that they need. Um, and we saw with the Red Sox, obviously, with Mookie Betts, that's its own discussion. But, um, <laughs> you know. Mookie Betts is on the Dodgers for the next 10 years. So that's its own thing as well. And I think that you see it a little bit more on these other teams. But I don't I don't know. I hesitate to say it's specifically a trend because I just think these trends change so quickly. I mean, what was it? Three off seasons ago, 
we had like the latest signed hundred million dollar contracts ever or four off seasons ago with like Darvish yeah. and um, a couple of others. And then the next year, Ma uh, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper signed at like the end of February and early March. So these things, and those were $300 million contracts, right? Not just a hundred or 126 like Darvish. So I don't, I, I think that I also think that the current outlook in the world is probably going to change how a lot of this looks for the next two years, um, how all of our lives look, but certainly how these kinds of decisions might be made as well. So I feel like we can have a better discussion about this in like five years when we check back in and see whether these trends did continue. But I, I just think there's such case-by-case -case basis that I'm hesitant to say it's like a slope in any direction, you know? So you know which one really threw me off was Acuna. Because you're yeah. right. Everyone else was sort of, you know, let's get them up while they're hot coming out of the, coming out of the minors of the international systems. We, we know exactly who this player is going to be for us. And uh, look, a lot of these teams don't want to deal with the service time issue either. I mean, that has been yeah. such a point of contention for some of these teams, uh, you know, Chris Bryant being the biggest. But that's got to be another reason to just throw this out the window and, and why agents are biting. I mean, let's just give, give this guy on a major league contract and not have to deal with that and the up and downs. But the Acuna one really stands out because at twelve and a half million a year through 20, 2028, this what this player could turn into, and I think he's pretty much there at this point, and he's still going to progress. That just seems asinine to me. It seems crazy to me that a player like that, like I wouldn't expect Aaron Judge to do that. I really wouldn't, you know, put his injuries aside, and I wouldn't expect Cody Bellinger to do that right now. If anything, those players are at a point now where they could be up in Bryce Harper's conversation. But I. Uh, I, I, that one really threw me off in terms of a, a progression, a trend. Where are we going with this thing? Are the teams just trying to take advantage of players? Why are agents doing this? And the only, the only logical thing I can say, and you sort of hit it right there a little bit, is that free agency is really kind of crumbling and for a lot of teams, not for all teams. You're right. The, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the big boys, they're not going to have trouble getting whoever they want whenever they want. That's just how they operate. But I'm, I'm really worried about the middle class and certainly the lower class in terms of free agency and even in the trade market. Um, you know, will they be able to keep up with these bigger teams if that's how it's going to operate? Do they have to do the Cleveland Indians model, which has been just basically say, this is all we can give you, take it or leave it to gigantic superstars who have just, you know, Jose Ramirez's contract is ridiculous. He's a three out of four, you know, top three MVP candidate, and he's going to max out at 50 million on this contract. So I just think you're right. I think teams have basically gotten down and said free agency is, is too big for us. It's bigger than we can get right now with the big boys coming in. And uh, this is how we're going to operate. We're going to sign them right away. We're going to keep them happy and keep them here for seven years. And then after that, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. I mean, and it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to pin it, pin even, you know, one thing on teams, whether it's the small market teams or anything else, because I also think that every free agency period, every offseason is very much defined by which players are the free agents that year. And with the trend that we have seen with the extensions, it's really changed who those players are. Right. And I think that that ends up changing how the market gets set. I mean, we knew that the market this last offseason was going to be set by Anthony Rendon, by Garrett Cole and by Strasburg opting out and then whatever contract he would take again, you know, and he ended up staying with the Nationals. But I think that you know, this offseason, the biggest name is JT Realmuto, um, who unfortunately has been hurt in these last few weeks. And, you know, I hopefully that's not a long term thing. And hopefully that's not something that affects, you know, his earning power or anything else. But, you know, it's him. And I guess Trevor Bauer, who has been 
you know, talked about wanting one-year deals, but, you mm-hmm. know, if he gets a bigger deal, would he go for that? We, we really don't know. Um, so that's even more of a wild card than usual, I would say. And I don't know. I mean, I, I still, I still think that like, I know that San Diego is not necessarily the same as some of the other smaller markets, but when they went all in and signed Eric Cosmer a couple of years ago, and then they signed Manny Machado, like that was just so much fun. And it's just so good for baseball. And the fact that it's led to everything we talked about earlier just makes it even better. But I, I would just, you know, I would say that of like, it's great to have other teams jumping in on these free agents, right? And spending yeah. money, you know, it's not like those guys took some sort of discount to go there. And yep. so I would just hope that we still, you know, there's still some great free agent signing out there for every single one of these teams over the next 10 years at some point. And I just want to see what those are, you know? Yeah. And you're right. And San Diego abused that trade deadline as well. They did everything. They, they were everything this offseason. They extended their own and they signed new players. You're right. Um, and, and I guess it's less about teams being able to sign. It's about players actually getting there. I know that's kind of my point, right? If I'm thinking multi-sport, which is kind of how my brain works right now, right? I, I kind of want baseball to move towards the NBA versus the NFL, whereas every NFL season, we get less and less major free agents, certainly no quarterbacks, right? Because the players just don't allow themselves to get there. So if, if baseball players are, are coming in at 21 and 22 and signing those those bridge deals almost right away, it's just it's it's less and less chance they're going to make it to that free agent market for teams like San Diego to cash in on or Oakland to rebuild or whatever it's going to be. It's just going to be kind of a logical step where they trade them eventually, you know, three quarters of the way through this contract to a major team who can afford it. Right. And, uh, and take it on from there. But I'm with you. I, the parody has always worked in this game and I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that it stays intact when I, when I evaluate this stuff, Sarah, this was great. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's do it again soon. Sarah Langs from MLB.com. You can follow her on Twitter as well. Sarah, thanks again. Thank you so much. All right. My thanks to Jeff Howe at The Athletic. Great piece on Cam Newton. Tons of numbers, tons of options, uh, destinations. He may be going next year. I'll certainly tweet that out on, at, at, at my Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff P. Howe. And, I'll, and of course, check him out at The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription to the great Sarah Langs, the numbers queen. She was outstanding from MLB.com, bringing it with the baseball talk as we head towards the postseason. My name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Trek Podcast. <laughs>